In the previous episode... Melatonin also has, of course, strong neuroprotective properties and anti-cancer properties as well, probably very much related to its effects on mitochondria. A more interesting sort of cutting edge discovery around melatonin is actually that melatonin is not only produced in the pineal gland in the brain, but is actually produced at the cellular level by mitochondria for mitochondria. And that melatonin doesn't enter the bloodstream. It stays in the cell where the mitochondria are basically producing it for themselves. Welcome to reInvent Healthcare a podcast for health and wellness practitioners passionately committed to transforming our current broken, disease-focused system. Your host, Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo, is devoted to helping you get results with complex health challenges like autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, and chronic health challenges caused by nutritional and lifestyle-induced imbalances. Here's your host, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome back to reInvent Healthcare, the podcast for health and wellness practitioners who are passionate about making a difference. I'm super excited to be here today to talk about a topic that it just is one of the things I love to investigate, I love to talk about, and I love to experiment with as well. If you're a health practitioner who really wants to help people to get well, not to just cover up symptoms, not to just apply protocols, whether nutritional or pharmaceutical, we are doing a live event that's just right for you. It's called Functional Nutrigenomics in Clinical Practice. And it's all about how you can learn the genetic testing you can do with people to help you to personalize their diet and lifestyle plans. And when you put that together with your typical really great functional history and lab testing, you're gonna have all you need. So join us for an online virtual event that you can attend from anywhere. It's June 2nd to 4th, 2023, and you can get there by going to nesliveconference.com. That's nesliveconference.com, and we'll also put the link on the show notes page. Concept of adaptogens are very popular in the current rage of healthcare today. Everybody's on the bandwagon for adding mushrooms to their coffee and adding ashwagandha and other adaptogenic herbs to their foods, to their drinks, to their lives in order to get more energy. And there's a few misconceptions about adaptogens that I want to run through. I want to run through what they are and what they do and how they work and the different categories of adaptogens because they're not all energy production. So let's talk a little bit about why we would need adaptogens and how they get into this whole picture of energy metabolism. So we talk about Adaptogens, usually people think about the adrenal glands. So they think about these little glands that sit on top of the kidneys and they have one of the highest rates of blood flow for every other organ in the body and the highest concentration of vitamin C, by the way. So vitamin C is actually really good for energy production because it helps to support the adrenal glands. And we look at the adrenals as, you know, the old way of looking at it after the cellier kind of theories that came out back a couple of decades ago were about adrenal fatigue in stages, stage one, stage two, and stage three. 
These days we think about it a little bit more, uh, less linear like that and more dysfunction. So the adrenals are dysfunctioning because sometimes it's not so clear to know whether you're in this sympathetic dominant state where everything is, is really high and you're on super alert and you have really um, amazing energy, but then you slump in the middle of the day. And then in the end of the day, they're wired again. So that's what we always considered stage one. What we always considered as stage two is that the reserves become depleted, but when you test this person, if you don't know what you're looking for, a lot of times it looks like they're just fine on a test that tests for cortisol levels, et cetera. So it's where the sympathetic nervous system is still dominant, but the reserves are going low. We have some compromise in the immune system and we get some compromise in sex drive, which I see more and more and more these days, even in younger people. And then finally, the third stage, as proposed by the Cellier model, is actually the exhaustion phase. It's where the sympathetic nervous system is still trying to be dominant because we still have a lot of stress in the system, but we're so long have been going through this that we're suffering from the negative effects of chronically elevated cortisol on the blood pressure, on the cardiovascular system, on other hormones. And then, you know, of course, the libido is low. Sex hormone imbalances are really common at this stage. Uh, accelerated aging, poor memory, etc. Now, that all said about these three stages, like I said, right now, the, the common theory of this process is that the adrenals are dysfunctioning. There's an imbalance in the way that we respond to stress, the way that we respond to everyday stresses and the normal rhythm, the circadian rhythm, but also in the way that the adrenal glands are functioning. So when we do tests, we're not, again, usually putting people into stages, although we get a general idea called that's in a lot of us, our minds, but it's really important that we look at it as a dysfunction, usually not just of the adrenal, but of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal system. So it's important that we look at this dysfunction, not just of the adrenals, because they don't function in isolation, but of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the system that connects these particular areas. And the hypothalamus and the pituitary affect the adrenals, and they get affected by so many other things. And when a person's under stress, we get that immediate impulse that, oh, it's from the nervous system and we have to respond from the adrenals. And so when we look at it as a system-wide dysfunction, there's a lot more that we can do to support people when they get into this mess. The first thing, the first and foremost thing, which is not necessarily the topic of today, but we can't ignore this for looking at herbs and other kinds of things that are considered adaptogens, we need to look at their stress levels and we need to look at their response to stress. And we need to be able to support them in responding differently to stress because quite frankly, they can't affect what's happening out there. They can only affect their response to it. So what we need to look at is this whole HPAT system. And we've done whole webinars and workshops on this. In fact, in the show notes, I'll give you a link to one that we did recently that was all about the hypothalamus and the pituitary and the adrenals and the thyroid and how to support them. And you can click through to, to go into more detail there. But I want to look at some of the plants that we know about that support the function of the HPAT. 
Um, in particular, today we'll talk about HPA, but thyroid is so involved with energy production, we can't help but look at that as well. Let's look at what an adaptogen really is. What's the definition of an adaptogen? It's a food or substance, usually an herb, that affects the body in such a way to restore balance. Now, some of these adaptogens are considered energizing adaptogens. Some of them are considered calming adaptogens. And some of them can go either way. And those are the ones that we most typically think of as adaptogens, as true adaptogens, because they don't have a specific energizing or calming effect on the system, but they more help the body to balance in whatever way it needs. So some of the herbs that we can talk about and some of the foods that we can talk about that have adaptogenic type effect are ashwagandha, chaga, which is a mushroom, cordyceps, which is another mushroom. Turmeric is actually considered somewhat adaptogenic. We can look at sea vegetables because they support the system. They're not technically considered adaptogens, but Romania and ginseng and magnolia, these are certainly helpful there. So what I want to do is take a few of these and just go through with you how these particular ones affect energy production and help the body to produce more energy, to have an effect that gives a person they feel energized, not a caffeinated energetics, but more of a, of a calming, soothing get the body to produce more energy and not be feeling like it's revved up and then crashing. So one of my absolute favorites is cordyceps. It's a mushroom. Mushrooms are typically parasitic, right? They grow on another substance. So cordyceps actually grows in the empty body, the shell of a caterpillar. And what happens in it is it produces a substance. The main active constituent is called 3-deoxyadenosine. And adenosine provides energy via supporting the mitochondria. It helps to increase the oxygen utilization that's involved in producing ATP, which is the energy currency of the cell. And of course, the mitochondria are the energy powerhouses of the cell. We found that cordyceps can balance cortisol levels. Well, what does that mean? Well, if they're low, it can bring them up. If they're too high, it can bring them down. And it has this effect of not just increasing energy, like, you know, have a cup of coffee and you'll have good, better energy for like the next two hours and then you crash. No, it does it by increasing the mitochondrial work. And then what it does is helps in balancing the cells and providing this kind of um, endurance type of effect. It's really, really an excellent herb. And what you find is that if you, if you recommend it to somebody, usually I recommend that you have them start it in the morning. And they can do it as part of what I call an elixir, a combination of, of adaptogenic herbs, maybe some, you know, some sort of good fats, nut seeds, and it's really a nice balancing drink. And when they do that in the morning to start, they feel this sense of, oh, I just feel like I better handle the stress of the day. I better have energy for going through the day. You can also give this at night, which might seem counterintuitive if it's an energy increaser. But like I said, it's not necessarily 
an energy increaser like, like you would think about coffee. You'd never think about drinking coffee late at night. What it can do, the cordyceps can actually balance out that function. So it helps people to actually, in some cases, get a better sleep. But what I recommend if you're going to work with somebody with cordyceps, start with doing it during the day. And if you really feel like they need some help at night, you might consider it. But there are better things to consider to help people calm down, to reduce the cortisol levels so that their nervous system is not so hyperactive at night. The other cool part about cordyceps is it helps with blood sugar metabolism. And we know blood sugar is super important for energy. If we can't get sugar into the cells via the role of insulin, we're not going to feel energetic. Somebody may have actually very elevated blood sugar, but if it's staying in the blood and not getting into the cells, they can get into trouble. The other side benefit of cordyceps is that it helps to reduce thyroid antibodies. So if somebody is suffering from a Hashimoto's type condition, it helps to reduce the body's attack on that system. So let's look at a few others that I like to use when I'm working with people on adaptogenic type things. So I like turmeric and people think of turmeric mostly as an anti-inflammatory and it is, that's its claim to fame. It also can help with the thyroid antibodies and reducing them and also helps with inflammatory bowel condition because again, it's anti-inflammatory. What that does then is help people to absorb and then eliminate problematic foods and absorb the good stuff, right? And it helps to support people in phase two liver detoxification, which is super important for energy, super important for energy. Another claim to fame that the turmeric has is that it contains vitamin B6 for hormone balance. So before I go into more of the specifics, I want to just share a little bit about the background of adaptogens and some of the classifications you're going to see on adaptogens. Uh, the term was actually first used in 1964. And so it's not one of these things that's been around for you know centuries, like a lot of the herbalism, the, the Eastern type herbalism capacities that we think about. It was first used by Russian scientists as they were studying Eleuthero which is one of the most famous adaptogens, Eleutherococcus centinosis, and that's ginseng. And they noted that it had such a wide range of actions that they couldn't really define them by traditional herbal action sets. And the way that it's defined now, the way that an adaptogen is defined is that they increase the natural resistance to stressors. And it's affecting the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And what happens was it brings balance to some of the sharp peaks and valleys in energy and mood as a result of stress. So what we find is that people who have stress problems, people who are in a sympathetic mode, will tend to have whoop and down, whoop and down, depending on where their cortisol is throughout the day. And that, again, relates to adrenal dysfunction not necessarily adrenal fatigue or adrenal overexcitation, but the adrenal dysfunction. And some people have these highs and lows throughout the day. The adaptogenic herbs tend to bring balance to that and help with mood stabilization. So in fact, newer research indicates that 
really there are only three plants that meet the classical definition of an adaptogen. Many of them are considered adaptogens, but the classic definition of an adaptogen, one is eleuthero, two, rhodiola, and three, schizandra berry. And they all have slightly different effects on the body, but the, here's the deal. Adaptogens are not meant to be curative, and if you overuse them contrary to popular belief, they can be problematic. People think, oh, they're just adaptogens, take as much as you want. And that's not necessarily true. So we have to be careful of them. And when we look at the classification of adaptogens, we have warming adaptogens and cooling adaptogens. We have moistening adaptogens and we have drying adaptogens. And then we have a couple of others that are considered things like blood tonics, which stabilize and nourish the blood, and chi tonics, which affect the energy systems according to the Eastern philosophies of energy. So I want to look at some of these in a little bit more detail. Some of the things that are considered cooling adaptogens, not necessarily adaptogens from the classic true sense of the word, but these are the ones that are often listed as cooling adaptogens. Meaning if somebody is hot, like a woman in menopause or somebody has a hot constitution, these would be good ones to use. If somebody tends to be running really, really cold, these might not be the best to do. So somebody who's really severely uh, hypothyroid and they're cold all the time, you don't necessarily want to give them a cooling adaptogen. So some of these are American ginseng, Panax, quinquefolius, also goji. We think about goji as like this little berry that we can add to our foods, but it's been used traditionally as an herb for a long time. It's a little bit neutral. It's not really fully cooling, so probably be safe in somebody with a hypothyroid condition. It's somewhat neutral, but it's anti-inflammatory, which means it calms down the heat, right? Which is why it got classified as a cooling adaptogen. Licorice is neutral to cooling, so it's not necessarily fully cooling, but you've got to be careful with the licorice root. It's not really a true adaptogen. It can be quite stimulating in people who have low cortisol because what happens is it increases the conversion from cortisone, that storage form of cortisol, into cortisol. And that can be more stimulating. And if the person is not having that particular issue, like they're not converting the cortisone uh, to cortisol appropriately, then it's probably not the best thing. The side effect of licorice is that can raise blood pressure. It has an effect on the aldosterone levels and can cause the blood pressure to go up. And I have personally seen this in clients, but also in myself, where I started taking licorice because the little tincture tasted so good and I just would pop it throughout the day and I ended up with high blood pressure. I went from normal to low blood pressure, whereas my normal blood pressure was maybe you know anywhere from 100 to 110 over 70 to 80. It went to 135 over 90 something within the course of a few weeks. So be careful with this. And if you have somebody who's doing licorice, because it does make sense for them, make sure you have them check their blood pressure. If they don't have a blood pressure cuff, always a good thing to recommend that they get one, but you can always have them look at their ankles and see if they have pitting edema in their ankles. A couple of others that are more Chinese herbs, ma men dong and peony. 
So peony, uh, are, they're all cooling type adaptogens. I haven't personally used them a lot, but they are classified as cooling adaptogens. Reishi is one that I use a lot. And although it's classified as a cooling adaptogen, it can be warming, slightly warming as well. Reishi is good immune system regulator. It's good adrenal adaptogen. It's just an overall good herb for those people who it's, it's good for. And rhodiola, it's not excessively cooling. It can be slightly cooling, but it is stimulating. So for somebody who's really exhausted and they need a little boost, having some rhodiola early in the day can help them to get through the day without the addictive qualities of drinking caffeine. And then the last one on my list of cooling adaptogens, this is by no means an exhaustive list, is Shatavari also called asparagus, asparagus racemosis. And this can be very helpful for someone who needs that cooling and also needs to have their, their energy balanced. I'm gonna look at a few of these in detail once I go through the drying adaptogens. So drying adaptogens, and some of these you're gonna find in multiple categories. So the drying adaptogens would be things like ashwagandha. Now ashwagandha, you may have to be careful of with some people, because it is considered a nightshade. But when I always think about this with people, I haven't seen a lot of people who are sensitive to it the way they would be to tomatoes and peppers and eggplant and potatoes. So these nightshades, insensitive people can cause inflammation and joint pain. So you want to be careful with that, of course. But it can also be very helpful. And the amount of ashwagandha you're going to use compared to the amount of tomatoes or potatoes you're going to have uh, somebody eat, like if you if somebody does eat potatoes, they usually eat you know like a few hundred calories worth of potatoes. They're going to be doing tomatoes. It's usually in sauce or salsa or other things where there's a quite an abundance, and those might cause them joint pain. But this little pinch, a quarter teaspoon, half a teaspoon of ashwagandha that you might use by adding it to an elixir or a tea or taking it as part of another food, is probably not going to be a problem. It's usually in the quarter teaspoon to one teaspoon range. So I think that you just have to. To play it by ear like everything else with our clients we have to be customizing their intake to their particular needs other drying adaptogens include asian ginseng which is uh, also it's different than eleuthero there's several different kinds of ginseng it's beyond the scope of this to go through every kind of ginseng we can spend two hours doing just ginseng if that's something you guys want to hear about go ahead and type it in the uh, questions section on the website. Just go to reinventhealthcare.com and then drop down where it says questions and put it in there. Like, I really would like to hear more about the ginsengs and we can, we can look at that. We can do a whole episode on the different kind of ginsengs and how you would use them. So another thing that's a drying adaptogen is astragalus. And a lot of people use astragalus as an immune booster or immune regulator. And we make teas and we can put them in soups, et cetera. But just be careful if somebody tends to be dry, like their mucous membranes are dry or they have Sjogren's syndrome or something like that, then be careful about using something like astragalus. Cordyceps is considered a drying adaptogen. So it's slightly drying. I find that it's not overly drying, but again, all of these things you're going to be using with clients and getting their full history before you make a suggestion as to what herbs and adaptogens they may want to use. Devil's Club is a really cool adaptogen that helps to regulate blood sugar. And it's like, it's a, the Devil's Club is considered the 
the herb of the warriors, right? It's just like they see it as like really strengthening uh, adaptogen, but it can be slightly drying, so just be careful. Eleuthero, we mentioned that earlier, one of the true adaptogens, is a little bit drying. Uh, Shizandra berry is extremely astringent and drying, so be careful of this with somebody who tends to be dry in their mucous membranes and a, a woman postmenopausal who may have vaginal dryness. Just be careful using it. It's also really good as a relaxing adaptogen. I usually use it then for the end of the day. But here's the thing. When you can use adaptogens that are relaxing, not necessarily energizing, you can help the person to have more energy because it helps them to get a better night's sleep, which of course contributes. And then rhodiola, again, extremely astringent and drying. So it's going to be, you got to be careful who you recommend that to. So let's look at a few of them in more detail. We have ashwagandha, which we talked briefly about. It's considered a nightshade, and it helps to normalize cortisol levels. So I've seen people's cortisol levels go up and go down. I've recommended it at bedtime. It helps people fall asleep. I've recommended it in the morning. Again, we don't know what the response is going to be for people, so I always start low and slow. Low dose, see how it affects them. The reason for prescribing or recommending ashwagandha is it's so normalizing for the thyroid function. It helps to stimulate the production of T3 and T4 and the conversion between the two. It also reduces vitamin C depletion when somebody is under a lot of stress. And we know that the adrenals are like gobbling up the vitamin C, so it can help to spare the vitamin C. Let's look at chaga. Chaga is this big old hunk of a mushroom that grows on the bark of trees. And its cool part about it is it helps to reduce thyroid antibodies. So, so far, we've heard about three different adaptogenic type herbs. And I say that with the quotes, right? Adaptogenic type herbs that help to reduce thyroid antibodies. And we know that so many of our clients and patients are being seen for Hashimoto's and told there's nothing that we can do. You've just got to live with this and take thyroid medication for the rest of your life. Well, we know, and we learned about that in our immune system segment of this podcast, we heard from a lot of practitioners who are having great results helping people with autoimmune diseases by looking at balancing their gut and their stress, et cetera. We also have antioxidant properties of chaga. I mean, it's really good antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and balancing for the immune system. It's been studied in cancer research. And I know we can't say we have an herb that helps to cure cancer because we don't. But we have things that can support the immune system in eliminating infections and cancers and reducing the needs for the kinds of drugs that we are often given in those conditions. It affects nutrients, and nutrients are super important for the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, like B vitamins, calcium, vitamin D, iron, zinc, potassium, magnesium, selenium, and copper. These are all supplied in this wonderful herb called chaga. 
So another thing that I like to look at, it's not considered really an herb. It's not really considered a, an adaptogen per se, but it has adaptogenic effects because of its effect on the thyroid function and the minerals. So this is called bladderac, Fucus vesiculosis. And it's got a lot of really good stuff in it that helps to support appropriate thyroid function. And appropriate thyroid function is important for appropriate adrenal function and vice versa. It also contains iodine and calcium and magnesium, potassium, sodium, and mucopolysaccharides, and another thing called algin, which helps to support. Let's look at one of a really famous herb for adrenal function. And for, it's not considered a true adaptogen, but it has a lot of adaptogenic effects. And that is Romania. And Romania, you can purchase as these little, they almost look like mini pancakes, little round discs. And you can use them either cured or uncured. So the cured is more effective for adrenal function. The uncured is more effective for slowing down blood loss. It's a mild laxative and also can be good for the kidneys. The Cured is also great for supporting the adrenal cortex in making its hormones. Can also be helpful in lowering blood sugar and protecting against steroid use in chemotherapy. So it's really an important one. I periodically just like to take the, I get the cured Romania as little discs and I chew on them. It has almost a licorice-like flavor. And uh, I'll oftentimes put them into hot water, pour boiling water over it, let it sit for a while and drink it just to kind of take the edge off the stress and help to increase energy. Panex ginseng, another one of the ginsengs is Korean ginseng. And it supports the HPA axis and also helps people to get that brain fog lifted, which is so common with low energy and fatigue problems. So it improves the cognitive function, improves attention span, and lowers blood sugar by improving the sensitivity to insulin. So it's really an important one for getting the sugar into the cells so those mitochondria have something to chomp on. It's good as an antioxidant and a free radical scavenger. And we know that the mitochondria make a lot of free radicals, as do the adrenals, when they're working on helping us to maintain low stress levels, but also increasing energy. And it's been shown in many studies to increase energy and reduce fatigue. And it's more, it's less adaptogenic than some because it actually can be stimulating by blocking the GABA receptors and the acetylcholine receptors. So GABA is a calming neurotransmitter. Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter important for parasympathetic. So it's a really important one for some of that. But do be careful if somebody tends to be overstimulated. One of my favorites is magnolia. And it actually lowers cortisol levels and decreases anxiety. It's actually been shown to be five times more powerful than Valium. So from an adaptogenic standpoint, it's calming the system. I especially use this for people who have high cortisol at night, and it helps to improve the acetylcholine levels and helps with the short-term memory. Because one of the things we know that cortisol does is it impacts the hippocampus and the short-term memory. Magnolia is also helpful 
for lowering blood sugar. So for those people who tend to wake up in the morning and their blood sugar is high, this can help to get that lower. And as a result, it'll decrease the effect or the risk of Alzheimer's because it's protecting the brain from the excess sugar. So some of the specific adaptogens that we looked at so far, we looked at Eleuthero and Rhodiola, Schizandra, looked at American ginseng, Asian ginseng, and cordyceps. Let's look at some that are considered warming. We already mentioned the ashwagandha is considered a warming adaptogen. So be careful about giving ashwagandha to somebody who's in menopause and experiencing hot flashes. With Asian ginseng, also known as Panax ginseng, there's different colors. So the red form is the hottest and the white form is less so. So if you're playing around with that and trying to figure out what the best one to give someone is, if they tend to be hot, they tend to be hot tempered as well as you know they're having hot flashes and they tend to be always warm. They're always like trying to turn down the the uh, heat and up the air conditioning, then you want to look at avoiding that with them. Or if you really feel from other perspectives that this herb is right for them, you play with small doses and start with the white form. Astragalus is also considered somewhat warming, cordyceps somewhat warming, uh, devil's club, Eleuthero and Schizandra, all are considered somewhat warming. So you've seen that some of these adaptogens fall into multiple categories. Let's look at the moistening adaptogens. Some of these are moistening. Obviously, you're not going to have something that's both drying and moistening or both warming and cooling, but the overlap between, like, say, moistening and warming or moistening and cooling, you're going to see some of that. So some of the moistening adaptogens would be ginseng, American ginseng, astragalus, Asian ginseng, codenopsis, Devil's Club, Goji. Haven't talked yet about Hushu Wu. It's often called the gray man's beard. And it's said to be good for as someone is aging to help to restore some of the vital functions that many people lose. And the story goes that someone who took this had gray hair, gray beard, and then they put him on this Hushu Wu and he ended up restoring his normal black hair color. So it's oftentimes called man's black beard, something like that. It's a very moistening. It's good for people who do tend to be dry. Maybe those people who do have a need for an adaptogen and they have something like Sjogren's syndrome, which is a really drying condition of all the mucous membranes. And licorice can be moistening. So we said licorice was moistening. We also said that licorice was cooling. Um, so you, you, Basically, when you're trying to decide whether someone needs a specific adaptogen, there's three phases that I go through. One is look at the science behind how the particular adaptogen works. What pathways in the body is that particular adaptogen affecting? And does this make sense for this person? And then we look at their classification, warming, cooling, drying, moistening, and see based on our complete history of someone what makes sense for them. It's not a good idea to just say to your friends as you're, you know, having a conversation, oh, you're having a problem, you should have this adaptogen without really knowing too much about them. So that's where you don't want to play around and get somebody into trouble. So in summary about how we're going to look at the adaptogens, we want to look at them from a standpoint of what function, what change do we want to affect in this person? If we have a low energy person who's in menopause 
and they're having hot flashes. You want to avoid, guess what, the warming adaptogens for them. Look at the characteristics of each of the adaptogens to see which one best suits them overall, not just in terms of energy production. Sometimes people have low energy because they're not getting enough sleep. So calming the cortisol at night and allowing them to get a better night's sleep can be very helpful. I know that I've seen some people who have been to practitioners who've recommended magnolia. And these are people who I've looked at and go, oh, magnolia would be good for you. Your cortisol's high during the day. You have high blood sugar, et cetera. And they were taking it during the day. I'm not a fan of taking magnolia during the day in someone who has high cortisol at night and low cortisol during the day. So you want to be suggesting something like magnolia at points of time when they have high cortisol. Now people go, oh, well, if they have high cortisol, why do they have low energy? Well, there's a whole lot more to it as you get, right? They may be tired and wired. They may have mitochondrial dysfunction that's contributing to the low energy. They may have nutrient deficiencies that are contributing to the low energy. So as we go back into the, the very first episode in this energy metabolism series, we talked about all those other problems that might be causing the low energy. We talked about things like anemia. We talked about different hormonal imbalances, low blood sugar problems. We talked about mitochondrial dysfunction. We talked about nutrient imbalances. All of these things play in. So we can't just say, oh, everybody with adrenal problems or everybody with low energy should take ginseng or everybody with low energy should take ashwagandha. Doesn't work that way. So learn these things. This is just an overview of these adaptogens. If you want to go deeper, like I said, we have a whole course on, or it was a one-day workshop that we did on adrenals and thyroid, had a lot of information about adaptogens. Uh, People in our NEPT program know that we talk about these things a lot. Our practical herbal therapeutics class, we go into adaptogens in great detail. So study it. In summary, we want to look at helping people to achieve more energy. We want to look at adaptogenic herbs, also foods that can contribute to the, uh, the energy production, right? Starting the day with greens and some of these herbs and making elixirs or smoothies or things like that, that support and nourish the system is going to help them very, very well. And that's the end of our talk today. What I want to do is encourage you to continue to understand what the heck is going on in the body, right? What's going on in there? The more you understand the biochemistry, the more you understand the relationship of food and nutrients to how the system works, the better able you are going to be to support your clients in getting the health that they came to you for. That's what we're here for, right? We're not here to just, you know, tell people to eat a certain way. We're here to support people in creating the habits and making the choices that give them the ability to be healthy. Remember to download the energy metabolism guide that we created for you. There's charts, there's herbs, there's lists in there. You're going to find really, really helpful in supporting your clients. It's free when you go to www.reinventhealthcare.com forward slash energy. And we do these series of podcasts. We do theme-based podcasts. So listen to the rest of these episodes and learn more about energy production and continue to support people in the way they need to be supported, not using some dogma or theory. 
And until next time, shine on. Thank you for listening to the Reinvent Healthcare podcast. Join the movement of practitioners that are guiding people to actually get well rather than covering up their symptoms. Connect with us at reinventhealthcare.com to access resources and tools that will empower you to create a thriving health practice.